And uh, just have to correct our well-meaning but sadly mistaken associate pastor, These are, this is more of a Canucks green, don't you think, than a Seahawks green? Right? They, they need all the support they can get. This is a Seahawks green, more like that. But uh, anyways, we, uh, I was expecting Keith to be just full gear, so someone has to represent today anyway, so we'll have fun, fun with that. Uh, but do want to welcome you here. My name's Brad. I'm part of the teaching and leadership team here at Jericho Ridge. And uh, we'll play a little game as we get started with our teaching time together this morning. This will work particularly well for you if you grew up in the 80s, just so you know, just some hints. So I am going to read out some titles of some books, and you are going to tell me what series they are a part of, okay? All right, so we'll, we'll start. Uh, the Cave of Time. House of Danger. No, that's a good guess, though. House of Danger, okay. Your code name is Jonah. Space Patrol. Okay, did any of you grow up in the 80s? Were you alive during the 80s? <laughs> this is a series, just so you know, that sold 250 million copies, and every library in North America had a copy of it. So I'm, really, I'm not sure what your excuse is. And you're also very slow on your mobile phones this morning because you could have Googled this by now and figured it out. Any guesses on the series? Choose your own adventure. That is right. There you go. Well done, Pete. Well done. Do you remember this? What's the prize? There's no prize. Just being right. That's prize in and of itself. So choose your own adventure. Uh, If you're unfamiliar with this series... This was a series of books, 184 of them actually, 184 different titles that were all written in the second person. So you become the protagonist in the story. You might be a detective or uh, you might be a mountain climber in the story or a spy or whatever it was. And you would read a few pages, right? And then you would come to a series of choices, where you had to choose your own adventure. So you as the reader were confronted with two or three different options, depending on your choice. You would go down a particular storyline and follow that through, and then you would come to another set of choices, and so on and so on. So hence the title for the series, right? Choose Your Own Adventure. So the series in the books, if you were reading and you were choosing to go this page and that page, it would take you forward in the book and then you'd go back in the book and then you'd kind of, you'd kind of be all over the place. It was no good reading these books like linear, uh, normal novels, left to right. You just can't do it that way. You can't treat it that way. Choose Your Own Adventure doesn't work that way. It's things like if you say yes to the strange person's invitation, turn to page 36. If you say no, turn to page 98. And so there's always multiple endings in the Choose Your Own Adventure books. There was never less than a dozen ways you could finish the books. Some books had 40 alternate endings that you could get to uh, in different pages, would end differently. Some of the endings were great. Some of the endings you would die in. And so I had a regular practice when I would read these books is I would keep my finger in the last choice that I had made so I could go back and undo it if I died in that particular choice and hadn't been able to see that. So sometimes I'd try and keep my fingers in multiple places so I could undo a few choices if I needed to, if I felt I was getting into a tight spot. But uh, these books sold more than 250 million copies 
And I remember I went to the library in Dawson Creek where I grew up and I got one out of the library every Saturday for years because they were such an intriguing way of thinking about a book and reading a book. And here at Jericho Ridge, in the months of January and February, we're going through the Old Testament book of Hosea. And if I had to choose a metaphor for the book of Hosea, it's graphic, it's intense, it's emotional. These 14 chapters tucked away in the beginning of the Minor Prophets I would say that to me, Hosea reads like a choose-your-own-adventure book. Part of this is the literary structure of Hosea. I don't know if you've done it, but pick up Hosea and try and read it left to right, chapter 1 through to chapter 14. It makes almost no sense to do it that way. It's really complicated in terms of the structure of it because there's a bunch of different uh, choices that are phrased, a bunch of different options that are laid out for people to choose. And so it's a little bit tricky that way. Hosea's choppy. The, the uh, image changes over and over again. The tense changes. It moves from the past to the present to the future, then back to the past again in terms of the series of events that it describes. The uh, actual voice of the book changes. The, the who's speaking in the book changes multiple times. Sometimes God speaking directly. Sometimes it's Hosea. Sometimes it's narrative talking about Hosea's life. And so that can be confusing. And Hosea is actually written over the course of a number of decades. And so if you read it left to right, one of the things that strikes you is this book is a little repetitive. He's on and on and on about the same stuff over and over and over again. And at points, God lays out some clear options and choices for people. It's like he says, if you want to repent now, turn to Hosea chapter 6. If not, stay in chapter 5. And so to me, the structure of Hosea reads a little bit like that choose-your-own-adventure book. And it's a bit confusing to navigate sometimes. But once you get past the structure of it, and once you get past Hosea's personal story, which we talked about a few weeks ago in chapter 1 and chapter 3, there's a basic outline that kind of repeats itself. And it's a little bit like a choose-your-own-adventure book because God keeps coming to people and giving them the same basic choices choice after choice, to demonstrate that they've actually repented or not. But as is often the case in their day, and as is often the case in our lives, doesn't always mean that the choice is going to result in a happy ending. So let's look at the book of Hosea. When Danny uh, preached and took us through the, the uh, second chapter of Hosea, he talked about and reminded us that it reads a little bit like in this section, like a court case, a legal drama that's unfolding. And that's a little bit helpful for us in terms of an analogy because the basic outline in the early part of the book kind of repeats itself like this. The first part is warnings. God says, hey, I'm putting a warning shot across your bow. There's things that are wrong that need to get changed around here. And I'm going to warn you so that you have time to repent. Pastor Keith mentioned this last week, that it can be a bit tricky sometimes in the book of Hosea to figure out exactly what God is so upset about. But God uses this enacted parable of Hosea's life story and his experiences with an unfaithful wife to make the point. His overall point is, hey, you have been unfaithful to me. We've had a a relationship here. We've made certain promises and covenants to each other. And you have not kept them in the way that you promised that you would keep them. And so God is actually accusing the people with these warnings. They've engaged in deception. 
They've engaged in religious activity without any connection to their heart at all. They've perverted justice. They've neglected the poor. They have divided hearts when they come to pray and much, much more. So God lays all of this out on the table in the book of Hosea. And he puts Hosea in the position of being his prosecuting attorney. attorney rather. But the people don't actually share. We come to know that the people don't actually share God's view of their actions and the choices that they have made. They think they're okay. They think they haven't and are not doing anything particularly wrong. So God has to take another step and not just only warn them, also Like a good parent, you not only warn your child, hey, if you do that again, there's going to be consequences. You actually have to follow through. So God actually allows consequences to come into the life of his people. He punishes them or allows them to be punished. The people experience the full weight of both natural and divine consequences for their actions. So grab your Bible or your smartphone and look with me at Hosea chapter 5. I'm going to start in verse 1. Here, Hosea is speaking to the leadership of the nation, and Pastor Keith talked a little bit about that last weekend. And God says through the prophet Hosea, judgment has been handed down against you. For you have led the people into a snare by worshiping idols. You've dug a deep pit, but I will settle with you for what you have done. Payday is coming. God says, you cannot get away with this kind of intentional irreverence and willful and flagrant disobedience of the things that I have asked you to do and you have promised that you will do forever. You may get away with it for a while. You may get away with it for a very, very long time. You may even get away with it until the day of your death. But in the end, God will punish those who persist in doing evil and who choose not to repent. And Hosea reminds us very graphically and repeatedly about this. Look at a few verses later in Hosea chapter 5, verse 4. Your deeds, Hosea says, the things that you're doing, they're so flagrant that they will not actually even allow you to return to your God. We talked a little bit about this last weekend. Pastor Keith reminded us of that image that sometimes we're so quick to kind of just say, oh, I'm sorry, God, sorry, I didn't mean that. But sometimes we actually need to sit with the consequences of our actions for a while. We need to actually sit in the mud and wallow a little bit and actually come to terms with the depth of our choices and the hurt that that's caused God and other people around us and face up with our actions and our choices. And unless we're willing to actually change our deeds, then it doesn't matter what's coming out of our mouths. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. We're going to talk about that in a few minutes, in a few verses. God isn't interested, and the consequences still come in this book. Hosea is a really intense book. It actually shakes a little bit, I think, of our categories, of our pictures of God. It's not a lot of worship songs written out of the book of Hosea about the picture of God that's there. Because this picture that emerges is a picture of God that's loving, but God is also fair and firm. He's almost parental in his orientation. He's like a parent that's dealing with a long-term behaviorally challenged child who just will not get it and will not walk in the ways that are wise. 
And so eventually God draws a line in the sand and allows the choices to play themselves out. So here's what happens. In chapter 5, if you look at verse 8, we actually have a ton of language that's very military-oriented. In verse 8, sound the alarm, blow the trumpet, raise the battle cry, lead on into battle. Uh, And the reason that this language is here in chapter 5 is that at this moment in history, Israel does something really stupid. They're actually engaged in a war at this moment in history. And historians call this fancy things because they like to have a job security to name things really fancy. They call it the Syrio-Ephraimite War. And this is a war between uh, Syria and Israel. Ephraim, if you look in Hosea, sometimes they use the, the word Ephraim. Ephraim is the largest tribe in uh, the north. And so sometimes it comes to be representative of Israel because by this time they've split into Israel and Judah. They're two separate entities now. So this war actually occurs uh, between 734 and 732 BC. And you can read about it in 2 Kings chapter 16. And also it comes up in Isaiah chapter 7 and in Chronicles as well. So let me give you the Cole's notes of this war. It did not go well for anybody. So there's no clear winner on it. So uh, what happens is Rezin, he's the king of Syria, and he joins Pekah, the king of Israel, and they both get together to attack Judah, Ahaz, the king of Judah. So they say to Ahaz, listen, this is how this is going to go down. You're actually either going to join us in our battle against the Assyrians, because they're a much bigger and stronger army than we are, or we're going to attack you. What would you like to do? And Ahaz says, I would like to not engage with that war with Assyria. I think they're going to win. And so both Syria and uh, Israel say, fine, we're going to come and attack you. And so they come and attack Ahaz, the king of Judah. And in one day, they kill 120,000 of Judah's troops. And they take 200,000 people captive. This is recorded in Second Chronicles chapter 28. So this goes very, very badly for Judah. Their nation is decimated as a result of this war. And so Ahaz has no other choice in his mind. He calls the king of Assyria and says, Hey, Tiger Pilather the third, would you come and rescue me from my adversaries here? And so the Assyrians come, and after they destroy Syria, and after they destroy Israel, then they come to Judah, and they require an incredibly heavy tax on the people of Judah. So this turns out, again, really, really poorly for everyone. The little war that was ends up bankrupting three countries and costing them their national independence. And it's almost as if God has said to the people, remember, he's been warning them for years, the Assyrians are going to come. This is not going to be good for you. I'm going to turn you over to other nations. And that is not going to go well. And they're like, yeah, 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 whatever. That'll happen sometime, maybe, hopefully not. And then it happens. And it's as if God said to them, oh, you want to turn to other people like Assyria and ask for help instead of turning to me? Yeah, how's that working out for you? Not so good, is it? And we're going to talk more in the coming weeks about why having divided loyalties is so detrimental to our spiritual lives. But right now, I just wanted to paint the picture for you here of the reason that the people are sitting in this kind of low place because they've experienced the judgment of God as it's been handed out through the Assyrians to them. Listen to Hosea chapter 5, verse 9. 
God says through the prophet Hosea, there's judgments that are going to come to you. One thing is certain, Israel, on your day of punishment, you will become a heap of rubble. Or verses 11 to 13 of chapter 5, where God says, the people of Israel will be crushed and broken by my judgment because they are determined to worship idols. I will destroy Israel like a moth consumes wool. I will make Judah as weak as rotten wood. When Israel and Judah saw how sick they were, this would be the time they would want to turn to God, but instead Israel turns to Assyria, to the great king there. But he could neither help them nor cure them. And so God says in chapter 5, verse 15, fine, I will return to my place until you admit your guilt and turn to me. As soon as trouble comes, oh yeah, they're going to come and endlessly search for me. But I'm going to return to my place. That kind of language is jarring for us to hear. That God would actually keep his distance or would withdraw is something we don't like to think about very often. Because I, I think we've become very familiar and maybe over-familiar with the safer, softer sides of God. We focus on his unending love, which is true. We talk about his compassion. We sing about it. We talk about and sing about his healing mercy, and we like verses about that. And we, we think about and sing about those parts of our interaction with God, and we pray using that framework. We don't like to think that we might actually reach a point in our lives where we have continued so far in disobedience to God that it's too late for us to turn to him because he's left the building, so to speak. We prefer to imagine and have a picture of God in our minds like the story of the lost sons that Pastor Keith referenced last week, a father who's longing and waiting and looking for each day for his prodigal daughter or his prodigal son to return, which is true. But this image is also true and paints a very differing picture, doesn't it? It's a picture of God who allows us and allows people to feel the weight of the consequences of our actions and our rebellion. Again, there's not too many worship songs written about that, are there? But I think this helps us actually see and get a window into why is God so amped up in the book of Hosea? Why is he so upset? What has happened? And we see in this picture, in this portrayal, when we understand how Hosea begins to unfold, that this isn't kind of a one-time event, that the people have done something that God's really upset about. And so therefore he said, that's fine, you're done, I'm done with you. This is a pattern, and this is actually actions that have turned into habits and habits that have turned into patterns over and over and over and over again. Hosea's not talking about that one time that you sinned and then God freaked out and left. No, he's talking about and addressing situations where we have allowed those actions to take root in our lives and they've actually become habits for us. And then those habits have actually created patterns of thinking and acting in our life, that we've developed actually ruts in very, very negative ways. And these habitual sins, these inclinations of our hearts that have a possibility to develop over time, where your life actually begins then to organize itself in a new way, around a new way of thinking 
and pattern. The inclinations of our heart can become so self-sufficient that we think, well, I don't need God anymore. Or where our hearts begin to point so far away from God that uh, in verse chapter 5 here, Hosea says, you wouldn't even recognize God if you saw him. That's how bad it is. God could reveal himself to you and you wouldn't even know it because the inclination of your hearts are so far away from him. Your choices to do wrong have become so entrenched, they have become habits and patterns that now seem like just a normal part of life for you. That's how deep that the sin has gone that Hosea and God are trying to address in this book. And the challenge is that that's not just true of people in Hosea's day. That can be true of our lives as well. It can be true of some of you here today. And if you're in that place today, it should concern you so deeply that you aren't concerned about that. If you have become so selfish and greedy, you don't notice anymore that you're not giving any money away to the poor, that should concern you. If you're online so often viewing material that's inappropriate that you don't even think it seems inappropriate anymore, that should concern you. And if it doesn't concern you, that should concern you. Because you're in such a habit. If you're in a place where you're in such a habit of bending the truth that you don't even call it lying anymore, that should concern you. When you have reached that place where you're in a very, very deep rut in your pattern of choices to walk away from the way that God has laid out a pattern of living, it doesn't concern you anymore. That is a dangerous place to be. You've reached the place where God is ticked off and you don't even know it anymore. You've played fast and loose for far too long. And one day, when you wake up and you realize how sick and how needy you are, you had better hope and pray that it is not too late. And this is why in the book of Hosea, God says sometimes he allows things into our lives to jar us out of that way of thinking, to hold up a mirror to us to say, this is what your actions and habits and patterns have become in your life. Pay attention because I don't want you to continue to live this way. And sometimes God actually allows trouble to come into our lives to wake us up so that we'll see him again. Because God's deepest interest is not for you to continue in that way, even if it seems to make you happy. God's deepest interest is not to make you happy. God's deepest interest is to make you holy and shape your character and your actions into the likeness of his son, Jesus. And so I plead with you, let him do that work in your life. If you're off course today, if you are beginning to feel like God's putting his finger on something in your life that's become a habitual pattern of thinking that he is not pleased with. Today's the day to make that right. So you might say, well, how do I do that? Well, let's go to Hosea chapter 6. I love the language of Hosea chapter 6. We've already talked about how God, sometimes he'll, do, he'll issue warnings for us to get our attention and did so with the people. Then he lets us experience sometimes the weight of the consequences of our choices. But there's a third note that always sounds in the book of Hosea. A third choice that God lays out. 
And he says, if you've come to a low place in the choose-your-own-adventure part of the book and now you're ready to hear about true repentance, there's a place that you can come to your senses and beginning to recognize all along that God has been there. And that is the place of waiting. God is waiting, this picture, for promised and promises hope if we return. Look with me at Hosea chapter 6, verse 1. This is Hosea talking about his own personal experience in his own voice and he is pleading with his compatriots and saying his friends saying to them friends come let us return to the lord yeah he's torn us to pieces but now he will heal us he's injured us but now he will bandage our wounds in just a short time he god will restore us that we can live in his presence all oh, that we might know the lord Let's press on to know them. Here's the promise. He will respond to us as surely as the arrival of dawn, of the coming rains in early spring. It's good stuff, right? A warm and clear invitation, a reminder to you and I that if we turn back to God, he will respond to us. Hosea is reminding them and us it's a guarantee. Just like the sun comes up every morning, just like it rains in Vancouver every November through March. You can count on it, Hosea says. When you press on to know God, when you make a commitment to returning to Him, He is there. But here again is the fascinating part to me. Keep reading. This is God's response now in chapter 6, verses 4 to 6. Now God's speaking and He says, O Israel, Oh, Judah, what should I do with you? Ask the Lord. Your love, it vanishes like the morning mist, disappears like the dew in the sunlight. I sent my prophets to cut you to pieces, strong language, slaughter you with their words, with judgments as inescapable as light. But you missed it, he says. I want you to show love, not offer sacrifices. I want you to know me more than I want burnt offerings or religious activities. But just like with Adam or at Adam, you broke my covenant. You betrayed my trust. You hear the parental tone of God's heart here? What am I going to do with you people? (laughs) He says, I... Basically, he says, I'm not so sure that this turning back to me business is going to last. You might choose your own adventure again. But if it's going to last, God says, here's what I need to see. And he spells it out clearly for them. True repentance. And this is what I love. God is abundantly clear. Just like the prophets have been clear about the problem. And God has been clear about the warnings. He is clear about the pathway of true repentance. God invites them and he invites you and me to consider his request and walk in it. And his request is actually pretty simple. Basically, God is saying, if you're really sorry, just show me. Your actions are going to speak louder than your words. Get to know me. Don't just put on a little religious pantomime every seven days and show up at a religious gathering. I love the part that those last verses, the way that those last verses are translated in the message. God says, I am after a love that lasts. 
I am not after more religion. I want you to know me, says God, not go to more prayer meetings. Here in Hosea, we have a pretty clear pathway laid out for us that whenever we're ready to return to God, God is ready and willing if we're walking in a pathway of true repentance. So what does true repentance look like here? Well, I'm going to use an image to help us remember what this pathway looks like that's bound up for us in Hosea. The first part of true repentance is recognizing that you actually need to repent. So we'll use the metaphor of our head. You actually have to realize and acknowledge that you should be sorry. Hosea's role was to help the people actually recognize what they had done was wrong. And this is always the first step on the road to healing and repentance. We need to admit our guilt, admit that what we have done is wrong before Almighty God and before other people. If you don't do that, or if you can't do that, or are unwilling to do that, then you can't start walking down the road of repentance. It's like if you're not sick, if you're not willing to say you're sick, then you're not going to seek a doctor. You're not going to go visit and get any medical input or advice. So it begins there. It begins with that recognition of realizing that God and us have parted ways and that he's calling us back to a pathway of repentance. But we need to agree with God on that and not continue to justify the things that we're doing as right or righteous. So true repentance begins with recognition that we should be sorry. It begins in our heads. Then it moves to our mouths. We need to actually say that we're sorry. Those of you who are parents know the importance of this step. When your kid hits another kid, you don't just say, well, you should realize that you're sorry for that. You actually sit them down and you make them say, you need to say that you're sorry for that. Can you hear the echoes of the language of the New Testament in calling people to salvation here? God says, not just believe that in Jesus, but actually confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, and you will be saved. But these things work in partnership. We don't just believe with our heads. We confess with our mouths. And if we're not ready to actually, we believe, yeah, yeah, what I did was wrong, but you're not actually willing to say to God and other people, yeah, what I did was wrong, I'm sorry for that, then you're still not walking down the pathway of true repentance. Starts in our heads, moves to our mouths, then finds its way, hopefully, into our hearts. That we would feel genuinely sorry for the things that we have done for our actions, that we would feel remorse. Now, true repentance is not about our emotions exclusively, but it ought to touch them in some way. Look at chapter 6, verse 6. The NIV translates it as, I desire mercy. That's actually a pretty weak translation. The word is a very emotional one. God says, I want, what, I, what do I want from you? I want you to love me. I want consistent, covenantal fidelity and devotion towards me. I want you to to be in a relationship with me where you feel something. 
It's not based solely on your emotions, but there is a part of your heart that when you're feeling remorse for what you have done, you don't just believe, yeah, yeah, that was wrong intellectually. You don't just say, yeah, I'm sorry for doing that. You actually feel, you know what? I have to sit with the fact that my actions actually have consequences and I hurt other people, myself. I've damaged myself in some way, not a whole person in the same way that I was before I made those choices. What does that look like? How do I feel that in some way? And the big message of Hosea chapter 5 and 6 is that actions speak louder than words. You can't just realize you should be sorry. You can't just even say that you're sorry. You can't even necessarily just feel sorry about something. You actually need to change your ways. And so you actually need it to go from your head into your mouth to your heart and then to your hands. You actually have to act in a different way. The first two work in partnership and the second two work in partnership with each other. And this is, I think, at the root or the heart of God's skepticism in chapter 6, verses 4 to 6. The people are so steeped in their actions, which have turned into habits, which have become patterns, that God's saying to them, until you change where I can actually see it, in your behavior, I don't actually think you've really repented. You're not really sorry for what you've done. Because just like rebellion isn't a single decision, so true repentance is not pictured as a single momentary decision. If your kid disobeys you one time, you don't go, oh, it's a rebellious child, and write them off. Rebellion is a symptomatic walking away in a continuous and purposeful and hard-hearted direction. And just like that, repentance, sometimes we think of repentance as just, oh, I'll just say, I'm sorry, God, and I'll just move back into it. Pastor Keith reminded us that that is not true repentance last weekend. True repentance involves recognizing and realizing that we should be sorry, saying that we're sorry, feeling that we're sorry, and then acting as if we were sorry for our actions. True repentance is not a single momentary decision. It's pictured for us in Hosea as pressing in to know God in a deeper way. God has no interest in, and you can't prove this to him, he's saying to the people, by just participation in religious activities. Regular life has to demonstrate the transformation If you come to church and come to Jericho and participate in all small groups and all that kind of stuff, but your life does not demonstrate that it's being transformed by the work of the Holy Spirit in any way, you're not acting and walking in a path of true relationship with God. God wants our heart and our soul, not just our lips, not just our worship songs, not just our activity. If we don't invite God and His Holy Spirit to change our behaviors, we haven't actually truly repented. So this brings us to the place of looking at our own lives and our own response. And for some of us, and I find for me, sometimes I will engage in part of this process. Maybe two out of four. And I think to myself, yeah, it was pretty good. I have two out of four. I, I realized I was sorry and I said that I was sorry. Did I change my behavior in any way? Did I actually feel a level of remorse for it? No, not really, but I said I was sorry. That's insufficient. Some of you may have started into this process of repentance. 
but not actually thought about the full implications of it. Maybe some of you have started and think about it for the first time today. Maybe you're coming to a place where you've said, I'm not, God's not been a part of my life. I'm not, I wouldn't say that I would be in a relationship with him in any way. And maybe today you've begun to think about that. Well, I'm, what part of me is not engaged in that process of faith? Maybe it's my actually head. Maybe I've still got some intellectual objections to belief in God. Love to walk with you on that journey. But maybe you're coming to a place of realizing, you know what, I actually want to engage in true repentance. I, I am ready and willing to acknowledge some of the things in my life and my control of my life as sin, and I'm ready to actually give that control over to God. The message of Hosea chapter 6 is whatever you do, please don't stop there. Don't just give mental assent to what you're doing. Actually, if you just mentally assent to what you're doing is wrong and only stop and never stop it, you're just doing mental gymnastics. You're fooling yourself that you've actually repented. You have to engage the rest of the process. If you're coming to the first time, you might say, God, I'm willing to admit that I've messed up my life pretty badly. I need you to take control. But then again, the process doesn't stop there. You have to continue on in that journey. You need to confess with your mouth. That's what the book of James was talking about. When it says, confess your sins to one another and be healed. James is not talking about that we as humans have the authority to forgive each other sins. That's God's prerogative. But he's saying that there's a freedom and a power that comes into your life when you're open enough to be broken with another person and be vulnerable with another person and say, I, this is an area of my life where I am flagrantly in disobedience to God. And I need you to pray for me. I need you to stand with me in that. There's power in that. Our four quarters groups push into those relationships or trusted spiritual friendships. I sit with a good friend every two weeks and one of the things that we do is we fess up to each other about areas of sin in our lives. And it's not a pleasant part of the meeting. But it's a necessary part for us to experience that level of, of engagement with each other that we can call each other and push each other to grow. That might be an action step that you might need to take. You might actually need to find a trusted friend and verbalize, say out loud, these are things in my life that I need to deal with and attend to in some way. Our prayer team today would be happy to listen to you and pray with you into those areas of your life that you want God to pour out his mercy and grace into forgiveness, into. So that may be one response that you might need to take today. The next part, when we get down into the third one with our hearts feeling genuinely sorry, our emotions, this is where Hosea gets interesting because he always links our emotions and our actions together. Hosea always reminds us we don't feel sorry unless you act sorry. And when you act as if you have repented, then you actually may sometimes begin to feel a release and a relief as if you are forgiven. But there's a little bit of a short circuit that can happen to a lot of us in this process. And that is, I experienced this in my own life, you might be in a place where you've truly repented and your actions demonstrate it, but you still don't feel forgiven. 
you walk into a place like Jericho or a gathering like this or your small group and you think to yourself, well, I could see how God would forgive these other people. They seem to have it all together. I know that God would never forgive me for that. Or yeah, yeah, he might forgive me, but I don't really feel like I could receive forgiveness from God in that way. You feel like for you, you've placed yourself mentally, emotionally, and spiritually outside of the reach of grace. You've mentally repented. You've verbally said that you're sorry. And you've begun to genuinely act differently in your life. But something inside of you, there's still residue there. We were praying about this in our pre-gathering prayer time this morning. One of the people said, I wonder if that, that residue, if we just name that as guilt and shame. That we're actually living in places of forgiveness and we've experienced the reach of God, but, but we still feel like there's a scarlet letter attached to us in some way that, oh, God could never forgive me for that. Some of you actually need to come to the place where you allow God's mercy and his grace to touch that place of shame in your life today. You want to feel forgiven. You're going to need to come for a prayer ministry this morning. Pastor Keith and Curtis, one of our elders team, will be on one side, I'll be on the other side. We would love to pray for you in that, that you could experience God's healing in those areas of your life today. If you've repented you've said you're forgiven, you've experienced God's grace and others around you have forgiven you, it's time now to forgive yourself, to allow grace to apply true repentance to the deepest parts of your heart. I was reading this morning in 1 John chapter 3, verse 20. It's a powerful verse that says, even if we feel guilty, God is greater than our feelings and he knows everything. But for some of us, we're still living with residue in that area of your life. I want you to come for prayer in a few minutes and we'll pray with you about that. I think it's true of a lot of us. I feel that in my own life. That there's just things in that choices that I made, actions that I've taken, that just you still, when you think about them, when they come to your mind, you just wonder if you're really forgiven for them. The truth of God's word declared over our lives is that he whom the Son sets free is free indeed. The greater is he who is in us than he that is in the world. And so we need to continuously remind each other of the truth of the scriptures and live out of that place. And when we live out of that place, we actually come to those last steps on the path of true repentance, that our actions begin to speak louder than our words. The true transformation begins to take root in our lives. It's not a transient effect. It touches us deeply and begins to change us. And friends, this is the wonderful part about grace because God is in the business of calling us to admit our guilt, to earnestly seek him with our heads, with our mouths, with our heart, and with our hands, and when we engage in this process and in this way, we are living in a place and able to experience not only true repentance, but all of the things that God wants to pour out into your life in terms of his mercy and his healing love. Let's pray together, and the team will come and lead us in songs that speak to this as we respond to God.
Father, we stand, each and every one of us, in need of your grace and your mercy, in need of your forgiveness in our lives, in need of reminders of times when you have forgiven us and yet we continue to live with a nagging suspicion that you haven't. Father, would you touch our hearts this morning through the message of your word and through the experience of your prophet Hosea. Yeah, we sang it already this morning. The words were on our lips. Your grace is enough for me. I'm covered by your love. But some of us, we haven't got there in our hearts yet, Father. So I pray for each of those people, for my brothers and sisters, that you would continue to apply the grace and forgiveness that you have purchased for us by giving your own life. Continue to apply it to each of those places of residue and guilt and shame and brokenness. Father, would your Holy Spirit do in our lives today and in our midst corporately a powerful work of cleansing and healing and forgiving and pouring out your mercy again and again and again into our lives, Father. We're ready to receive it from you, Jesus. Make us ready to receive it from you, Jesus, in this place today. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Spirit, we pray with all the authority that you have given us, Father, to walk in liberty and repentance and in true confession. We say amen. Amen.